Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 4 of Hypnosis Weekly. Yes, yes, hello and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Yet again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a marvellous show lined up for you today. In a short while, I will be sharing with you an interview with a man who is one of Darren Brown's early stage hypnosis influences. Um, the stage hypnotist and creator of the stage show, the unique hypnotism without hypnosis, Martin S. Taylor. Then I'll be taking a glance at some recent stories in the media where hypnosis has featured. Um, I think I'll actually be going off on one this week. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary, as usual, on the ways hypnosis uh, tends to get portrayed in the media. Um, um, and I'm going to go into a bit of depth this week on a couple of, uh, in a couple of very specific directions that will make sense when we get there. Instead of the usual discussion with our guest this week, I'll be opening the mailbag that has been overflowing in recent weeks and uh, I'll respond to some of the letters, messages and comments that people have made since we began things here a few episodes back. Um, and, that, and that stuff, as, as, as per the discussion each week, really presupposes that those of you listening have some knowledge of hypnosis theory. Um, in particular, I'm going to be referring this week to the existence, or not, as the case may be, of the unconscious mind, as well as plenty more. We'll round things off with the hypnosis factoid of the week before I then bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate where possible. If you have questions, queries, thoughts, feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with the, 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 the references made in, in the interviews, along with related links, are all posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle .com. You can add your thoughts, comments, and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter or anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's very, very much appreciated. So first of all, this week's interview. Um, I've met Martin S. Taylor a couple of times at conferences and at a couple of social events. We have um, some mutual friends and he's spoken uh, here in Bournemouth at my own peer support group that I run for local hypnotherapists. I often write and talk about how hard I find it for academics, researchers, doctors and similar professionals to treat this field with the respect and seriousness it deserves and, and all that despite my own research and, and what I would consider to be credible evidence-based work. And uh, Martin's told me before that, it, that if I find it difficult then I should try being a stage hypnotist. Despite that 
He speaks at credible events, including sceptic organisations. And what's more, I got to ask him those questions that we all want to ask about Darren Brown projects that he's worked on. I think you'll love some of the references that he offers up as well. So here it is, the, this week's interview with Martin S. Taylor. Now, as I've just been saying, I'm absolutely delighted to have with me today Martin S. Taylor. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome him here to Hypnosis Weekly. Hello, Martin. Hello. Um, Martin, to kick us off, could you just tell us a little bit, first of all, how you got into this field, um, and what, what your background is, and how you arrived here where you are now? Sure. Um, I don't know how much detail you want. Um, Basically, I, I came from a, a mathematical background. I, I studied maths at university. Yeah. And when I was an undergrad, I worked very hard at maths and needed some kind of relaxing hobby. So I got into magic, uh, worked as a magician for a while, became yeah. proficient at that. And then when I did my postgrad work, uh, I used to go around the halls of residence working as a magician, doing informal stuff. And there was a guy who used to go around doing informal stuff as a uh, as a hypnotist yeah. and we got invited to parties together and I would do magic and he would do hypnotism in the classic stage hypnotist swinging a watch in front of people with some degree of success yeah uh, and I watch was interested by this and then uh, about a, a year or so after that I was, chat I was actually chatting up a girl in her room <laughs> and I, I showed her some magic and uh, giving a spiel about oh yes and I know about hypnotism and then she said wow you know about hypnotism oh gosh I've always wanted to be hypnotized come on let, let's hypnotize me now come on <laughs> and I couldn't really back out at that stage <laughs> so I said okay well I'll give it a go and I got my flatmate in as a witness and I tried all the things that I'd seen this guy Colin do I didn't have any thought at all that it would work but I thought we'd give it a shot and to my astonishment she was an excellent subject and um responded very very well to a lot of the, the simple tests that we did so I spent the rest of that summer practicing on people they getting anyone I could persuade to sit still long enough to try it out and reading all I could uh, when term started I went back to college and some friends of mine had organized a, a guest lecture yeah they were organizing a lecture society and they'd invited a guy called Eric Lathwaite along, Professor Lathwaite, gave a fabulous talk on gyroscopes, an engineering college. Everybody knew that Lathwaite's talk on gyroscopes was a fabulous thing to see, and they knew they were going to get a huge audience. But on the morning of the, the talk, uh, Lathwaite phoned in and said he got flu, he couldn't do it. And they absolutely panicked, and what, what are we going to do, and how are we going to entertain all these people? Uh, I know, Martin, you're the entertainer. They get out and hypnotism. <laughs> that perfect talk for subject for a talk. Get out to a talk on hypnotism. So I thought, well, I can talk about the history and the science and all I know, and I, I can't just do a talk about hypnotism without actually demonstrating it. So I said, okay, well, we'll do this, and I'll do the talk, and I, I demonstrated it. I've um, practiced on a couple of people beforehand. Uh, the guy who was actually in charge of the society was Palab Ghosh, who's now senior BBC science correspondent yeah. on television. He was the first guy I actually hypnotized in public. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And I spent the afternoon practicing on Palab and got him doing some simple things, uh, produced name amnesia, and uh, and uh, I did demonstrated this in front of the audience. And then I called for volunteers from the audience and got huge response. Everybody, loads of people volunteered, and it was a great success. And 
it was written up in the local student newspaper, lecture success, audience falls asleep. <laughs> and from then on, I, I didn't look back. They invited me again and again, and I started writing publicity to other universities. Um, and that's how I actually became a hypnotist eventually when they made me redundant from my day job. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm actually making enough money from the hypnotism. Maybe I can go professional. Um, that's, that's how I became a professional hypnotist. Right. Uh, right. Now, if okay. you want to know more about how I formed my views on hypnotism, because in those days I still had the, the old-fashioned view that it was a, an altered state of mind induced by eye strain, watch swinging and nonsense like that. But, um, yeah. And, and what, I mean, which leads us nicely then on to, 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 to your thoughts about hypnosis um, um, you, when people ask you about it, as, as, I, as, I, as I'm guessing that they do a bit when, because, you know, it's such an intriguing subject matter. Um, how, how do you explain it to people? Or, you know, do you have a working definition of hypnosis that you've arrived at? And could you perhaps tell us a little bit about how, how you arrived at, at this, this definition and, and how you explain hypnosis today? Well, it's very hard to find the, the actual words to describe what I think hypnosis is. Yeah. Because people always start by saying, well, it's a state of mind. And what do you mean by a state of mind? Um, and I think the important thing to, to realize is that it isn't a, a sort of binary different state from the waking state. It's not like sleep or it's not like being in a coma. It, it's more akin to I don't know, being angry or being in love or something. It's just a, a different attitude of mind, if you like. Mm. Um, I started out believing that, that it was some altered state that people were having their mind put into some different position, different condition, which was, and you had to get them into this condition by some magic incantation, saying magic words, swinging something in front of their eyes. But I. The thing that um, started to, to change my opinion was I would finish my show by uh, giving people water and telling them that it tastes like their favorite drink. Yeah. And they'd all say, oh, yes, this is you know beer or whiskey or gin or vodka or whatever they drank. And I noticed something really rather odd. Even though I haven't given them any suggestion as to whether they would get drunk or not, either all of them would get drunk <laughs> or none of them would get drunk. Right. It, it was never just some of them. Yeah. Or always just a few. Oh, yeah. It was never a few. It was either all or nothing. And I realised that they were taking their cues from what the others were behaving, from the way the others were behaving. Yes. Um, it wasn't anything I was saying. And and if if they were influenced by what the others were saying and doing. Did this necessarily mean that the hypnosis came just from the, the magic words I was saying? So I, I experimented with this a little bit. And like a lot of hypnotists, like a lot of stage hypnotists, I believed in those days that you could only influence people hypnotically when they were in a trance. Mm -hmm. So what I did was experimented by tweaking the suggestions after they'd come out of the, the trance, as I believed it. And... People would open their eyes and they'd be drinking the, the beer and the whiskey and the hallucinated drinks. And I would say as an aside to the audience, even though they're drinking just pure water, you'll see in a minute they'll start to get drunk. And if I said that, then they would all get drunk. But yeah. if I said to the audience, again, as an aside to the audience, 
even though they think they're drinking beer and whiskey, because it's only water, none of them will get drunk. And I found if I said that, none of them would get drunk. Even though I'd only said it as an aside to the audience, I hadn't told it to them. And it was clear that they were acting on what they thought they were supposed to do from my aside to the audience. Yeah. Um, I combined this with some more reading I was doing. I was talking to people who were skeptical about the, the hypnotic trance, and they said, no, no, it is just suggestion. There's nothing really actually going on in their minds in this way. Um, and by experimenting how I could do what the books call waking suggestion, where you would essentially just extend tricks of suggestion. I mean, we're all familiar with the, um, you know, arm levitation. You yeah. both arms straight out in front, and you say one arm's getting light, and it'll float up in the air, whereas the other one doesn't. And we all know that can be done without any kind of trance induction. Yeah. But I thought, I, I wonder how far I can take this without a trance induction. And I found that with the right approach, you could get people um, to produce catalepsy, you could produce amnesia, and even in, in extreme cases, hallucinations with people without any kind of trance induction at all. And so I began to realize, and by experimenting and by reading around, began to realize that there, there isn't the, the, the accepted model of a hypnotic trance, something that you have to put people into by means of some arcane procedure either whether yeah. it's the old-fashioned way of swinging a, a bright light or eye strain or whether it's some of the modern snap induction or the handshake induction or whatever kind of induction that they're not necessary anything that people think is going to induce effects phenomena whatever you want to call them yeah. will work as long as they believe it yeah yeah, and and I mean, you, you you mentioned there that you that, that that I mean in addition to your own experience and your own experimentation, um, you'd 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 read a, a fair bit and explored the subject. Yeah. Um, um, can you tell us a little bit about 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 what what those kind of texts were? Uh, the things that that contributed to your understanding the most. Um, perhaps some of your major influences in the field and um, e even any teachers that have been influential upon you and, and, and why? Sure. Um, nobody's actually taught me anything formally, which is why I think I'm, I, I have such a unique approach to hypnosis, why I'm the only person doing it in the way that I do. Yeah. Um, in terms of influences, uh, the, I mean, the big name in this country is Graham Wagstaff. Yeah. Uh, his books and writings on hypnosis, Mike Heap. Um, yeah. and in the States, people um, like Spanos, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Chavez. Yeah, Spanos uh, and Chavez, yeah. Spanos, Chavez, uh, people like that. Uh, oh, Robert, great. Robert Baker. Yeah. Uh, his book on hypnosis was very influential. And... Um, I mean, all of those are quite strong um, non-state proponents oh, as well. Yeah, and, and, and real major academics. Um, I'm, I, I'm a real fan in particular, you know, Heap, Graham Wagstaff, um, um, especially some of the ways in which he's incorporating cognitive neuroscience these days. Um, and, and absolutely, these are, these are non-state proponents. So is... Is, is that how you then arrived at this concept of the hypnotism without hypnosis? Yeah, hypnotism without hypnosis. It's a bit of a, a sort of 
it doesn't really mean anything. Obviously, hypnotism and hypnotism, hypnotism and hypnosis mean the same thing. Sure. But it's it seems a sort of catchy title to to promote my show under. When people say, "Well, you know, do you do hypnosis?" I say, oh, "It's without hypnosis, but it's like a hypnosis show." It, it, it was very hard for me to to explain what I do. Yeah. To say that it's the kind of show where I get people on stage, I use psychological techniques to make them do silly things, but I don't use hypnosis. I mean, how do you how do you describe that? <laughs> I came up with this idea, hypnotism without hypnosis, as a, as a as a short and catchy way, a pithy way, if you like, of saying it's a way of getting people on stage and making them do deaf things without hypnotizing them. Uh, James yeah. Tripp calls it hypnosis without trance, which is, I think, a bit more accurate and, and clear. But not not as catchy or as pithy. So. Sure, sure. Because I I, I mean I've I've seen some, some some clips of you at work and and I've been in in a bar before where you've been where you've been doing stuff and it's and it's kind of not had the, that that sort of ritualized component of of the induction um, or, or, or or even um, anything that that typically people might have considered to be a deepening process or anything like that. It's it's almost been directly suggestion. It is, yes. And I think that's all hypnosis is. And I think that by doing anything that they think will <coughs> make it work, will make it work. Yeah. So if, you know, I, I mean, 30, 40 years ago, people believed that you swung a glittery object in front of them. Yeah. And in those days, that was what you did, and it worked. You do that now. People think, my goodness, is science not done anything more? You, so yeah. now people expect something a little bit more. Uh, I don't know, either scientific in a therapeutic context, some some sort of specialized induction with special words or relaxation or listening to a ticking clock or whatever. On stage, they expect you to strain your eyes and look up at a glitter ball in the ceiling and hear dreamy music. Um, but whatever people think will work, will work. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's simply because it's suggestion. You just have to do for people what will work. And if they if they think it isn't working and they think that it needs deepening, well, then you have to do something which they think will deepen it. Sure. And if going at it for longer is better, then that's fine. But, you know, that, that's. And um, 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 just 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 on a slight tangent there. Um, um, what what I find quite interesting, it, it even. Even quite ironic, in a sense, is that you're telling people, look, look, look this is not doing, this is hypnotism without hypnosis. Um, um, yet, yet, despite the fact that you're telling them that it's not hypnosis as, as they may have known it, um, their expectation is still, I'm guessing, still very high based upon your reputation and based upon what you do, which, which uh, I'm guessing also influences responsiveness, do you think? Well, that, that's the amazing thing. It, it's uh, that it still works, even if you tell them everything in advance. <laughs> yeah, Pe people, even the, even the skeptics, even the hard non-state people, still believe that you need to tell people that they are hypnotized for it to work. Yeah, uh, and they're amazed when I get up and I talk to people and I say, "Look, there is no hypnosis. It is just suggestion. It is just peer pressure, obedience, or uh, and." Yeah. And you think, well, now he's explained all that, it'll never work. But, still, but it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and I do it, and that's how I do it. And there's some, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier that, that, you know, I'd seen some pretty impressive applications um, that, that you'd done in, in live uh, live demonstrations, and also some of the stuff that we've seen um, um, recordings of you. Um, I'm guessing that. You, you, 
I don't know if perhaps you've become blasé over time or not, or whether you continue to be as impressed as you always were with some of the things that you see occurring during your own shows. Um, what, what are some of the more impressive applications that you've directly witnessed, either within your shows or, or, or in, in other circumstances? When you say applications, you mean useful things or just any kind of... Well, well any really. I, I suppose that could be anything from, from just, just phenomena, so-called, or, um, or, 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 yeah, useful, useful applications, therapeutic or, or, or non-therapeutic or just fun. Things that have just kind of um, I'm, I'm impressed you. I'm always... Uh, hallucinations are always astonishing especially yeah. when you get people to hallucinate something which will make, make them react in a big way making them I, I mean I've always done the elephant at the end of the show and people's responses when they they believe they can see an elephant even if they <laughs> can't actually see an elephant they that the different responses to that are, are interesting too the way different people respond but I, th I think the the um, when you get someone who, who can be made uh, um, who can experience anesthesia I think yeah. that the surprise that it works. Um, what I'll do in, if I'm performing to medics, um, I'll give someone a, a sterile, um, what do they call them, an autolet, a little needle thing to uh, to draw blood. Yeah. Um, and I'll hypnotise them, and I'll say, okay, when you say ABC out loud, you'll be unable to feel pain in your hand. And they say ABC, and I give them this thing, and they stick it in the hand very gingerly, very nervously. And then just a look of amazement as they start repeatedly stabbing this thing into their hand. My God, <laughs> like, oh, I can't feel anything. I can't feel anything. Yeah, yeah. And the idea that people have undergone serious operations with, you know, where the, where the only anaesthetic has been a, a psychological one. Yeah. I think that that has to be the most remarkable because yeah. it's so because it's so objective. It's, you know, Absolutely. we all know what pain is. Sure, you can cure people of phobias. And if someone who was terrified of spiders can now happily pick up spiders on their hand, well, that's that's impressive, objectively. But it's not something that most of us can experience because most of us aren't that terrified of spiders. Whereas we all know what it's like to feel pain, and, and just to have somebody who can, you know, have have a an appendectomy or whatever it is, using hypnosis as the only anaesthetic, that I think is a is a big and surprising thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean. Um, um, it's it's quite a lengthy, quite a lengthy and impressive um, career that you've had. Um, um, you know, I mean, starting back um, um, uh, and and your interest being peaked. You know, you know, prior to your your your, your other careers. Um, if you could go back to when you when you started out doing your hypnosis professional uh, work, knowing knowing the things that you know now, is there, is there there's something you'd do differently? Is there a different approach you'd take? Um, and would there be any advice that you'd extend to yourself, that younger version of you, um, <laughs> um, along the way? I, I, not to get too hung up in in, in a trance induction. I, I mean, for certainly doing it on stage, when you get so many people so enthusiastically volunteering, you are going to get enough good subjects, and you really don't need to waste time with any any induction. If the induction, if an induction works at all, it will work quickly. Yeah. In, in that kind of setting. Yeah, yeah. Um, 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 
you know, for me, that's really encouraging to hear. I, you know, I'm always really impressed and pleased to hear that that kind of uh, that kind of stance. And and quite clearly, um, you, you you have an interest as far as um, evidence based approaches to hypnosis is concerned, um, um, because heck, you, you've cited a number of really impressive authors. Um, what are your thoughts with regards to evidence based approaches to, to hypnosis? Well, it all, I mean, not just hypnosis, but life. I mean, everything has to be based on, on evidence. You can't just, I, I don't know, people get feelings about things and they, you know, it's all right in the arts, but when, you, when you're dealing with hypnosis and you want to treat it as a science, you've got to base it on evidence. You've got to look at, at the results you get. You've got to compare statistics, um, big time, long term statistics. Yeah. Um, it has to be done. Any kind of serious results have to be done. Um, have to be done that way. Yeah, they have. They have to be evidence based. You can't just. You, you can. I mean, yes, you can. If it's if you're doing it on stage and you just find that such and such an approach suits your character better, I guess then we are veering over into the artistic side. But particularly when you're talking about. Um, you know, when you're talking about using it for therapy. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, very much so. Um, and of course, is central to my own, um, central to, 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 to much of my own work. Um, <clears throat> when, <clears throat> when you came and spoke in Bournemouth, um, you also demonstrated the, the Stroop effect um, to the class. And I, I think for many, for many of the, the the people that were in class, and certainly those that had not studied with my own school, that that that, that was all quite new to them, um, and that's really, really good quality evidence of of hypnosis in effect. I think, and I think um, everybody would benefit from knowing that. Um, it's only slight. I mean, the effects, but there the do seem to be something emerging, and it is it's, it's one example one of a very, very small number of examples of things which can be produced, effects which can be produced using hypnosis, whatever that is, um, which can't just be produced by people saying, well, look, try and do this yourself. Do it without, um, do it without hypnosis. Just try and play yeah. along, if you like. Uh, people can't respond to the, um, people can't cheat the Stroop effect. Yeah. Colour seems to be quite, uh, quite high on the way that, that, that hypnosis does affect people's. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm muddling. Um, but there seem to be a lot of things like this where colour is involved in the phenomena, the hypnotic phenomena that people investigate. Uh, I went to a talk of a guy who's been doing a lot of work with people who have synesthesia. Yes. Um, where you see a word as a as a certain colour, and whenever you see a particular word or a particular number, you always see it in the same colour. And there are people who just find that Tuesday is always blue, whatever it is. Yeah. And they can they can be made to experience a similar kind of thing to the Stroop effect, whereby if you show them the word, I don't know, if they see Tuesday as blue and you show them the word Tuesday on a blue background, then they find it harder to read than if you show them Tuesday on a red background. But if you right. hypnotize them, you can, to some extent, change the way the synesthesia works yeah. and, and alter how easy it is for them to see certain words against different backgrounds. 
Right. Um, in addition to reading about it, have you have you um, hypnotized people um, and, and, and looked at inhibiting the Stroop effect directly yourself? I haven't. No. Uh, I'm. I mean, to be honest, I'm busy enough just doing what I do. Well, quite. Uh, um, um, now, in a couple of the previous episodes of this podcast, um, a couple of people that I've interviewed have cited Darren Brown as greatly, highly influential to them. Um, um, and, 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 and I introduced you to, to, the, uh, to my own group here in Bournemouth uh, when you've been our presenter as the man who taught stage hypnosis to Darren Brown. Um, I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, how did, how did you come to be involved with, with Darren? Sure. Um, well, first of all, to say that I taught him, he's really putting it a little bit too strongly. He had influence, would, I would settle for. Sure. Uh, he, he came to a show. He was a, an undergrad at Bristol University, and I was doing a show at Bristol. And he showed up, and he was in the audience. And in those days, I would quite often stick around and chat informally with students afterwards doing doing experiments and finding out how hypnosis works. It's how I acquired a lot of my knowledge was through these informal sessions with hypnosis with students after the formal show. And Darren came back afterwards and watched and as, as I did some more stuff, I got completely hooked, wrote to me afterwards um, and said, look, I, I now know that this is what I'm going to do as a career. I'm going to be a fantastic stage hypnotist. I want to make this my life, can you give me some advice? And we corresponded for a bit. Um, things dropped off, uh, I, I lost contact with him, and Roland then reintroduced us, and then uh, recent, more recently I went to see him at one of his shows, and we met at the stage door, and yeah. was delighted to see me, invited me out for a drink, and um, yeah, we, we've sort of chatted and corresponded, and any, any interesting stuff that comes up. Great. We share with each other. Um, um, and and um, I've seen your. Um, I, I, I saw that you had some some involvement in some of his larger projects. Is there is there anything that you're able to to talk to us about that you've worked on and how hypnosis was used in those in those projects? Well, yeah. Um, in the, um, the big one that I was involved with was uh, his his show Apocalypse. Oh, great! I'm so pleased yeah. that you can speak about that. Ah, where, where the guy was, um, yeah, the guy was hypnotised to believe that the the uh, the world had had it was coming to an end, and uh, yeah. some infection had come to earth on a meteor and was turning people into zombies. And yeah, there was a lot of discussion about it on 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 forums and so yeah. on, and, and and certainly we had a really big um, uh, discussion about it on on my own hub, um, and so it's it's fascinating to hear. Um, uh, you know that that you had an involvement with that. Yeah, I was I was involved in quite a big way. Um, I, the, the the actual selection process at the beginning, finding somebody who was a good hypnotic subject. Uh, Darren could have done it, but he happened to be at the other end of the country at the time. Yeah. So uh, the team got got in touch with me and said, "Look, would I go along and, and find some people?" And I I was happy to work with them. Uh, yeah. And it was a sort of joint collaboration. I found that. Stephen Brosnan, the guy they used, was uh, a good hypnotic subject. Yeah. Um, and so um, um, uh, there was, a, the, you know, he, he was good and responsive to the things that you'd been working on. Were there were there several um, um, choices, or was was he just out and out deemed I mean, the best? 
if you watch the if you watch the program, the beginning of the yeah. program, you see there's a whole room full of them and a whole room yeah. of people reacting to hypnotic suggestions in different ways. Uh, he had the personality that they were looking for as well. The, the sort of he was the sort of person who they wanted to to use as the main subject. Yeah. Um, and and he was a great hypnotic subject. He responded very well to the suggestion. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the questions which I'm asked so often i'd say it's probably the question i'm asked more often than any other on on the very first module of my diploma or or, or on or on any of my kind of cpd stuff is that when i'm talking about hypnosis being um when i tend to put it in more of socio-cognitive type of terms um as far as hypnosis is concerned that it's a skill and so on and then um darren just walks onto a bus and just goes sleep and um, and someone is instantly hypnotized like that. Is that something um, therefore that you think you, you know Stephen Brosnan needed to have practiced and been involved in um, beforehand to develop that responsiveness or, 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 or you know could Darren just wander the streets doing that to absolutely anybody? Certainly Darren couldn't do it to absolutely anybody. I mean that that's that's for sure. Uh, now you have to remember that Darren Brown is Darren Brown. Of he course. is a public figure, he is known, and people's expectation is raised when they see him. Absolutely. So, um, you also don't see how much editing uh, and whatever is done. Yeah. Uh, now, I would say quite likely that given the, the perfect subject, the perfect candidate who knows Darren Brown, who knows who he is, knows how he works, Darren could go up to them, just snap his fingers in their face and say sleep and they would collapse on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. But to say that's going to work to everybody is ridiculous. Sure. On the other hand, if someone has been hypnotized, if they know how Darren works, if they know the sort of things that he's going to be, that he's likely to be doing to them, then, um, then it's much more likely to work. And obviously, if he's done it before, if he's done it already, then it then it's you know with with any good yeah. subject, it will work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, that's uh, that, that, that that that's really interesting. Um, um, Stephen Brosnan had never been hypnotised before. The way you saw it on the on the program, Darren just walked up to him, snapped his fingers, went to sleep, and Stephen fell asleep, which wouldn't have happened had Stephen not been hypnotized before in the pre-session and told when you see Darren Brown he snaps his fingers then you will go to sleep right yeah yeah well that's um that's really good to hear because I think a lot of people sometimes um sometimes think that uh you know you know that, that Darren has some kind of special skill that's out there to be learned um, that he can just go. And of course, he has that expectation and and so on. And, and he's known these days. Um, um, but that's re that's really useful to hear. Um, now, Martin, just because of where we're at with time. Um, Sorry, I was just thinking there's a wonderful quote of Darren's. I absolutely have got it to hand at this instant. And I can say exactly how he. Yes. Yeah, here we go. Um, yeah, um, Darren, on one of his shows, when he hypnotizes people, he yeah. said, and I'm, this is an exact quote, he said, they appear to fall asleep because I click my fingers. In reality, 
the mixture of my confidence and their expectation that that's what they're supposed to do is enough for them to take it as a cue for them to go back under. Great. And that, I think, really explains a lot of, of Darren's success in his own words. Yes. It's, it's his confidence and their expectation. Yeah. Ah, I, 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 I love that. I think that's great. I'm going to uh, I'm going to transcribe that small quote. Um, um, yeah, that's um, that's well, it's, it's it's from his show where he hypnotised someone to. It's from his show, The Assassination. Yeah, he got someone to shoot Stephen Fry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Martin, um, where can people go to learn more about your work, your approach to hypnosis? Don't know. Um, What's your website address? Hypnotism.co.uk hypnotism.co.uk um, Everybody I'm, says what a great website address and it would be if people could spell the bloody word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's wonderful. Really illuminating. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate you coming and uh, um, I'm having those questions thrown at you today. Um, Martin S. Taylor, thank you. Thank you. I do love that Darren Brown quote. Uh, I think it's worth rewinding and getting that lodged into your brain by repeatedly listening to it. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. I feel a little bit like I've turned into the hypnotherapy police when it comes to media representations in recent years. Uh, the amount of provincial news articles with the predictable swinging watches and headlines saying you are feeling sleepy. Um, just tend to get on my nerves a bit and I find them rather tiresome. We have so much to be proud of in this field with a growing body of research and evidence to support it, um, a, a growing and improving credibility. Yet the media depicts the field in this antiquated cliched manner. Um, and you'd think that here in the UK our own NHS at the very least would get it right, wouldn't you? Um, yet <clears throat> On the NHS guidance page about treating insomnia, the page states, there's very limited evidence to suggest that either acupuncture or hypnotherapy are effective for treating insomnia. Now, you guys listening are probably expecting me to dispute this statement, I would guess, but it disappoints me greatly to say they do have a point. There is a severe lack of research to show direct efficacy of hypnotherapy for overcoming insomnia. Psychological therapies that emphasise relaxation, cognitive restructuring and sleep hygiene do tend to be um, medically recommended treatments, but it seems to pass by the awareness of the NHS that hypnosis is proven to advance relaxation and certain cognitive approaches. Evidence does suggest that the use of relaxation results in individuals rating their sleep as more restful too. And one thing we can say without much doubt is that people find it easier to relax and can relax notably deeper and more profoundly with the use of hypnosis and subsequent self-hypnosis. Exploring the research into the use of psychological methods to help improve sleep, in randomised controlled studies, participants treated with CBT showed significant improvement in quality of sleep and reported more satisfaction with their treatment than those prescribed popular sleep medication. 
Hypnosis has proven useful as an isolated intervention, but sadly, the research is a bit isolated altogether. And unfortunately, the effectiveness of hypnosis for treating insomnia has not been thoroughly researched. Yet if CBT is being championed by the NHS, as it is throughout their website, we do have a 1995 study by Kirsch which suggests that CBT interventions are made more efficacious with hypnosis as an adjunct. And there are numerous case studies and clinical experiences by professionals that suggest CBT interventions could be more effective when combined with hypnosis. Now, um, in addition then on the NHS page with regards to hypnotherapy, it states the following. Overall, the evidence supporting the use of hypnotherapy as a treatment in these situations is not strong enough to make any recommendations for clinical practice. No firm conclusions can be made because the studies are generally only small and of poor quality, and we cannot be sure if the results are anything more than the placebo effect. Now, the issue here is that there are different ways the placebo effect functions and is advanced. Peripheral suggestion can advance the placebo effect, for example. Someone going to a posh clinic to receive homeopathy from a doctor-type figure in a smart office, for example, could be advancing the placebo effect for the ensuing homeopathy treatment they receive. Um, with this in mind, and with the way in which the different ways in which placebo effect um, 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 can vary, we can see that although hypnotherapy may well have some placebo influence, it still does have many studies that measure it against placebo effect, and it very often comes out on top and performs better than placebo. Hypnosis might be partly what Irving Kirsch refers to as a non-deceptive mega-placebo, but it also does outperform placebo, so I don't think the field of hypnotherapy can be fobbed off with this argument. If we look at the main NHS page about hypnotherapy, it refers to key areas where we have some studies that they agree suggest hypnotherapy could be beneficial. Irritable bowel syndrome, losing weight, quitting smoking, skin conditions, anxiety, natural childbirth. In some of these areas, we do have strong empirical evidence to support the use of hypnotherapy, not just the poor quality studies that the NHS website suggests. It also continually fails to acknowledge that point that I made, that hypnosis as an adjunct to CBT has been shown to advance many applications. Um, so it's not, it's not a great deal so far to, to really grind my gears or get me arguing about hypnotherapy as portrayed, unless you then go to the NHS page about irritable bowel syndrome. Because on the same website that's disputed the evidence base for hypnotherapy and equated its, placebo, um, its effects to placebo, the website then states, hypnotherapy has been shown to help some people with IBS reduce their symptoms of pain and discomfort. Hypnosis is used to change your unconscious mind's attitude towards your symptoms. You can have hypnotherapy as an outpatient in some NHS hospital pain clinics, or you can learn self-hypnosis techniques to do at home. Now, first of all, hypnosis is used to change your unconscious mind's attitude towards your symptoms. For goodness sake, um, um, this, this kind of this kind of sentence makes my head want to explode, I'll be honest. Um, um, NHS, you blew it with me. You and I are over, okay, until such a fallacious, nonsensical, bullcrap sentence 
uh, is removed from your website. So I'm going to take some deep breaths, gaze at the birds playing in my garden and think of a happy place. Um, um, now, so I'm going to actually refer to this later on. Um, um, so I'm not going to go into too much depth about that, but how on earth the NHS can be so evidence-based place such a keen eye upon the research supporting the field of hypnotherapy, then also write a sentence such as that. Um, and I think it highlights that even the NHS is not impervious to misconception and myth and downright pseudoscientific notions perpetuated by popular psychology. Now then, so um, um, back to hypnosis in the news. All of this kind of discussion and thought um, doesn't necessarily seem to have made its way into popular media because one thing I mean one thing I've got a hand to the newspaper uh, the Daily Mail and the Mail Online here in the UK because you know um, uh, it, it's not my it's not my media of choice I'll be honest but they do champion hypnotherapy and they share quality success stories on a regular basis and it makes me happy to see the popularity of some of the success stories that make their way around the internet and portray the field of hypnotherapy in a favorable light um, um, and, and just recently there was a story in the Mail Online, woman sheds eight stone after using hypnotherapy to banish her cravings. Brilliant. Fabulous article giving an account of a lady called Lynn Seymour from Southampton. I'll put the link um, um, within in the Hypnosis Weekly website for you to have a read if you want to. She had a course of hypnotherapy sessions, helped her to overcome food cravings, be more motivated, and her before and after photos are very impressive. She looks really happy. Um, great advertisement for hypnotherapy. The article itself does not perpetuate myth or popular misconceptions, as is often the case, um, um, with, and, and some of my complaints are angled in that direction. However, when you pan down and read and scroll down and read the comments left by members of the public, it shows how little people seem to really know about hypnosis and hypnotherapy. And let me, let me give you an example, a couple of the comments. First comment. This sounds like a great idea, but I think some people are more susceptible to hypnotherapy than others. An ex-boyfriend's mum lost quite a bit of weight through hypnotherapy. She would keep herself topped up by playing Paul McKenna's CD while she was sleeping. Okay, um, I think with regards to suggestibility and susceptibility, I'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, but I just wanted to add that listening to audio tracks when sleeping will not, will not be any use. When you're asleep, properly asleep, you are asleep, okay? Um, um, there's no, there's no so-called subliminal responses that happens when you're sleeping. When you're asleep, you're asleep, okay? When you're when you're in that kind of half half sleep type dozing stage, um, then okay, you know you may derive some small benefit. Um, but good audio instruction, instead of just you know being listened to passively and played in the back good audio instruction will advise you to engage in the processes and be active throughout it so it kind of perpetuates the myth that hypnosis is something that happens to you rather than something you need to actively engage in um a second comment there um, a woman has written, she looks great. I tried hypnotherapy many years ago for my fear of flying, but it didn't work. I just sat there thinking how ludicrous it was. You have to be of a suggestible nature to fall for this mumbo jumbo. Now, 
My brief response to that is to, to suggest it didn't work shows a complete misunderstanding of what hypnosis actually is. Hypnotherapy is not something which is done to you. You're not a passive recipient of it. It's a collaborative process. It's a verb, something you actively engage in. It does not work or not work. Hypnotherapy is not a noun. It's not a thing. It's not a tablet with a certain percentage chance of helping you. It's not a plaster you are applying to a wound. It's a process that you engage in. There is strong replicated evidence to show that hypnotizability can be modified. Um, anyhow, and I've, I've spoken about that in a, in a former evidence, uh, in, in a former episode. Um, um, again, there's another comment in there that says, glad it went well for her, but I tried hypnotherapy and it didn't work for me. Again, hypnosis is not something that works on people. It's a process and it's not 100% responsibility of hypnosis to work on you. It requires collaboration, understanding, expectation, and for you to engage in the process. It might be more accurate to say you didn't work for hypnosis. Um, now, someone else replied to that comment saying, try again with a different practitioner. It should really work for everybody. If it has not worked, it's just because the hypnotherapist had not found the right door to your subconscious and the root of the issue. Now, obviously, this comment is well-intentioned. It's not bad advice, but the second half is full of misinformation. You know, hypnosis has proven to be nothing to do with a subconscious. Um, and I'm going to speak about that later on. You know, there's, there's no real evidence to indicate its existence. You know, at best, it's a metaphor. Um, um, but there is a severe lack of um, evidence to support the notion that finding a root cause is actually useful in a therapeutic sense. And I'm going to do my best to get on perhaps a really strong and well-known proponent of, of regression and so on. And, and perhaps we'll have a really good discussion about that on a future episode. So um, the final piece of news that I wanted to point out was um, a story with CBS CBS New York offered up a clip entitled Scene at 11, Hypnotizing the Pain Away, and I'll include the link to the clip. Now, it's not just those swinging watches, those swirly spirals that makes me cringe here. It's not just the explanation of hypnosis as being a way to access and give suggestions to the subconscious. But it's also the fact that a news clip with this time, effort and resource put into it could surely offer more than just subjective reports. And they could quote some research. Why go to the bother of speaking to a hospital doctor who only has subjective experiences? Why not properly ask the, the opinion of someone who knows about research and can quote something proper? CBS, you know, covers hypnosis for pain management, um, but, but I'd probably say that most hypnosis professionals will want to look away from the video at times to cringe. Anyhow, that's those week's stories, links to all these stories listed under this week's podcast entry at hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, in place of this week's discussion, I'm opening the mailbag. I've had a number of questions that have been rather general and are focused on um, I'm on my own favourite approach to hypnosis and hypnotherapy. So I thought I'd respond to some of those and we'll be able to refer future listeners back here if they ever ask the same things. A couple of them are rather political hot potatoes, I would say. So, 
as I delve into the post bag here, um, first question. Dear Adam, in your model of hypnosis, can hypnosis be created without expectancy? Could hypnosis be engaged with people who don't believe in the hypnotic process without the correct mindset? Now then, firstly, it's not my model of hypnosis, okay? This, uh, the sociocognitive uh, perspective, for example, um, and, and, that, and those other related conceptualizations of hypnosis were around and being established before I was even born. Um, the socio-cognitive model, the cognitive behavioural model of hypnosis, um, do indeed benefit from expectancy, yes. It's not absolutely essential, but greater gains are made when there is a positive expectancy. Likewise, if someone does not adopt a positive hypnotic mindset, it would be very difficult to establish hypnosis and responsiveness according to that model. Second question from the same person. Could you also share with me the full references you mentioned in the podcast with James Tripp? I like to read the journals, especially these, these two simply labeling CBT as hypnosis increases its effectiveness and indirect suggestions don't work. Okay, first of all, I did not say that indirect suggestions don't work. Okay, really important. Um, and what I said was that they do not work better than direct suggestions according to the evidence. Many individuals are taught Ericksonian techniques or indirect language patterns and are told and subsequently end up believing that they work better and more effectively than direct suggestions. And this is simply not true. The study that I quoted was a thorough, thorough expansive meta-analysis entitled Direct versus Indirect Suggestions. Um, and that's just my phone going off in the background there, that's really professional. Um, um, okay, yeah, um, um, a meta-analysis that was entitled Direct um, versus Indirect Suggestions, a Conceptual and Methodological Review by Lynn Neufeld and Mayer, um, 1993. Featured in the International Journal of Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, it's not an isolated research study, it's a review, a full meta-analysis, so it encompasses the results of many, many studies. With regards to the effectiveness of hypnosis in combination with CBT, the study is entitled Hypnosis as an Adjunct to Cognitive Behavioural Psychotherapy, a Meta-Analysis, which is by Kirsch, Montgomery and Sapiesti, 1995, featuring in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. Again, it is an extensive review, very thoroughly conducted. Now then, next question. If you believe that hypnosis is a cognitive skill that you actively engage in that was in um, that was in quotation marks um, which is something that I'm co correctly quoted as saying how do you bypass the conscious mind to access the subconscious mind it'll be too busy now then I trained as a hypnotherapist originally in 1997 I was taught a very particular method that the vast majority of hypnotherapists are trained in the front line um, I believed in that model, I didn't question it, accepting it as the truth and blissfully not knowing any better. Central to that model was the notion that we all have a distinct conscious and subconscious mind. Okay, now, my own career in this field was propelled as a result of my first book, which I wrote back in 2004. It's entitled The Secrets of Self-Hypnosis, Harnessing the Power of Your Unconscious Mind. It was a bestseller. Um, among many things that I read in the years after writing that book, I came upon 
um, a wonderful quote that I, that, that, that I often quote um, by the philosopher and psychologist William James, um, which is over 100 years old. Now, James had this to say about the existence of the unconscious mind. The sovereign means for believing what one likes in psychology and of turning what might become a science into a tumbling ground for whimsies. James wrote that in 1884. When I first read that, I felt hurt. Um, and I find it a little bit embarrassed. Um, I, I find that I am embarrassed by, by the fact that, you know, my, my work was, was based upon this. Um, today, the majority of cognitive psychologists, neuroscientists, um, dispute the concept of dualism, okay, that of the mind being distinct to the brain. There's, there's no, no discovered centre of consciousness, um, no, no centre of decision making. And it made for some initial discomfort as reality hit me. You know, my, my book was there showing people how to communicate with their unconscious mind that I really was finding more and more likely that it didn't exist. Dualism of mind is probably only useful as a metaphor, and even then, only if you're comfortable with mistruths. So why not simply explain it as it is? Still today, I get emails from people all over the world, desperately spoiling for a rumble with me. You wrote a book with the unconscious mind in the title, and yet you blog and record and broadcast saying that it does not exist. Heck. We change, we develop over the years, right? We all ought to be developing and changing as our careers progress. All hypnotherapy associations that I've had anything to do with have expected continual professional development. And I think we all need to develop progress and move on. The irony for me, and you know, the bitter pill for me to swallow, is that most of the evidence supporting the model that I was adhering to all that time ago um, was, was again written before I was even born. You know, it's nothing new. Um, so, yeah, I think if you look at Stephen Langton's chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Hypnosis, which refers to the Ericksonian approach, he states that the approach required preparation and consideration, and it was not just about trusting the unconscious mind to do the right thing. Yet, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of people that, that, that sort of learned the Ericksonian approach often adhere to that kind of sense that that's what it's about and that you know people just need to trust their unconscious minds even if they don't remember anything that happened and Stephen Langton actually you know a real academic on on, on the Ericksonian approach said that that's a dangerous false assumption um, yet it's that approach that characterizes the unconscious mind as a separate entity that was a force for good um, Erickson um, stated, your unconscious knows how to protect you. Your unconscious mind knows what's right, what's good. When you need protection, it will protect you. Um, so despite people like Stephen Langton's efforts to educate us on the Ericksonian approach, to the contrary, since I first qualified as a hypnotherapist, I've encountered many hypnosis professionals who believe that it's fine to think in terms of that kind of magical thinking and that the all-seeing, ultra-wise, benevolent demigod that lives within us will serve us perfectly. The unconscious mind knows what we want. Why not let it sort things out? So should there be a distinction made between the unconscious and conscious minds? Is it actually just nonsense? Do these two minds actually exist separately from each other? Or is it, as some tend to favour as a theory, a simple metaphor that helps us illustrate hypnosis in action? May still believe and work to this model of the mind in relation to hypnosis. And, um, you know, I don't want to offend people. 
Um, let me give you a quote. 1970s Heartland's book. The conscious mind is the part of the mind which thinks, feels, acts in the present. The unconscious mind is a much greater part of the mind and normally we are quite unaware of its existence. It's the seat of all our memories, our past experiences and indeed all that we've ever learned. In this respect it resembles a large filing cabinet to which we can refer in order to refresh memory whenever we need to do so. Um, yeah, so that's the that's the 1971 version of Heartlands, which you know it, it, it's come on and developed a lot since then. Um, for many hypnosis professionals, the existence of an unconscious mind is essential. Yet, why is it then that virtually the entire academic fraternity and research community for the entire hypnosis field throughout history do not adhere to this notion? Many frontline hypnotherapy professionals characterize the unconscious mind as being a vast storehouse of memories, or that it has great knowledge and wisdom, that it is literal, that it processes information in a way that's different to the conscious mind and makes various other distinctions. Then we come, when we come to the field of hypnosis, it takes on another dimension. It's then believed that hypnosis is what enables us to communicate with this unconscious mind um, or direct the mind, the unconscious mind, to do certain useful things. And this is certainly how I was originally taught and how many people are still taught today. But it's not necessarily a valid explanation of what is actually going on. When people are told this by someone who totally believes in it, they treat it as empirical truth and accept that we all have these two totally separate minds doing totally separate things. Many people are not shown how to adopt responsibility and the appropriate skills to make change for themselves, to learn to be in control, because they wait for something magical to occur. That the mind is divided into these two parts, the conscious and unconscious, is an oversimplistic and potentially a very misleading idea and one that unnecessarily limits our progress in understanding human psychology and hypnosis in particular. That's a quote from Heap and Aravind 2002. We all tend to commonly say that we have thoughts, ideas, memories, images, um, and, and nominalize them as things. You know, you guys that have studied some NLP will be aware of that, you know, objectifying things. Um, likewise, the idea that, 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 that we have thoughts and we, you know, actually we are imagining rather than having images, rather uh, we're, we're, we're thinking rather than having things called thoughts. And the way that Michael Heap tends to, to use this um, um, is that, you know, with regards to activities of thinking, remembering, imagining and so on, all of these are represented by neural activities that are, as of yet, you know, unknown, perhaps even ultimately unknowable, and are associated with the conscious experiences that we have um, and that we call having memories, thoughts, images, and so on. So, suppose, for example, um, that you've done listening to me for a minute today and you go and do something else, get a cup of tea or go to the loo. However, later on, um, you start thinking about some of the ideas that I've been speaking about here. Surely you can only do that if there's something, some representation of this material, a memory that exists in your mind that you retrieve 
when you decide to, as, as you would draw from a filing cabinet. Now, we can say that that is so only in a manner of speaking. A more accurate and potentially less misleading description is to say that as you're listening to this, neurochemical uh, or neurobiochemical changes are occurring in your brain that enable you in the future to engage in the activity of recalling this material. So don't these observable neuronal properties constitute your memory of this information? So the example that um, Michael Heap uses is waving or shaking hands, for example. Um, having experienced a handshake with another person earlier in the day, uh, a physiotherapist or a biologist might perform a careful examination of a person's arm and hand later on that day. And as a result of that examination, conclude that indeed the arm is capable of moving and doing the handshake process. However much they examine the arm though, they won't locate a handshake. The handshake is not a thing that exists, is it? And so what relevance does this have to the concept of the unconscious mind? Um, and, and so putting this in terms of, um, of, of the way in which Michael Heap puts it, um, someone who, who I highly respect in this field, um, um, really, really quality academic, um, um, it's simply that, that perhaps an unconscious mind just does not exist as a separate entity with these characteristics that, that people give it. In the context of the model that I tend to adhere to, uh, the unconscious mind doesn't exist. Um, we can talk about doing things in an unconscious manner and doing things automatically and on autopilot, but as a separate entity, distinct from the brain, distinct from another separate entity known as the conscious mind, it doesn't exist as far as that model is concerned, and there's no evidence to suggest that it does exist. Um, if you examine the depths of research in the field of hypnosis over the last century from major contributors such as Hull and White in the 1930s and 40s, Hilgard in the 1950s, Barber and Orne in the 1960s, those that engaged in the theory wars of the 1970s, such as Barber and Spanos. Other authors up to the 90s, such as Kirsch, Lynn, McConkie, Sheehan. None of them discussed or wrote about the unconscious mind. It's not forged a part of academics' understanding of hypnosis. And therefore, um, I think if, if my own approach is going to be an evidence-based approach, then the unconscious mind's not going to feature there. So that's that's a rather long-winded way of me answering that question and I hope that answers your question uh, well um, as far as uh, um, you know that the, the bypassing of the conscious mind was concerned. Um, is that it's not really a question um, that, 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 that becomes a problem for me because um, within my own work it's it's not something that exists. Now the final question we'll take on today, when you were, Adam, when you were discussing the art and science with James Tripp, you refer to critical thinking a lot. Why is it so important for hypnosis professionals? Is it really? Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think so. And that's the reason that I go on about it a lot. In a nutshell, I think critical thinking is the ability to think clearly and rationally. 
And I think that's important for hypnosis professionals. And I think it's important for self-hypnotists as well. You know, it, it includes the ability to engage in reflective and independent thinking. Critical thinkers identify, construct, evaluate arguments. Um, they use due diligence, consideration when presenting information. Critical thinkers detect inconsistencies, common mistakes in reasoning, um, um, such as noticing if someone offers up solely subjective anecdotal evidence to support their theory. Okay, and because I mean that happens a lot. If you go to forums, you get a lot of people whose main discussion point and way of arguing is to say, "Well, I've worked with eight million people over the last fifty billion years, week upon week, and this is the case." Um, and, you know, I never want to discredit that or belittle that, but it's still subjective anecdotal evidence which is supporting their theory. Um, critical thinkers tend to solve problems systematically um, um, and, and also reflect on the justification of, of one's own beliefs and values, you know, i.e. that's not just carrying on bloody mindedly believing something because that's the way you were taught it several years ago. Um, and, and that's the reason that... You know, I make a big deal about the fact that I was such a strong proponent of the unconscious mind, but am no longer. Um, but being a critical thinker is not just about being able to regurgitate and accumulate information. A person with a good memory who knows a lot of facts is not necessarily good at critical thinking. I mean, an extreme example is that if you look at autistic savants, you know, such as the character played by Dustin Hoffman in The Rain Man, you know, have phenomenal memories, but fairly poor, well, you know, very poor critical evaluation skills in some cases. A critical thinker is able to kind of deduce consequences from what he knows, knows how to utilize information, solve problems, and to seek relevant sources of information to inform himself or herself, and locate valid evidence. Um, I think all hypnosis professionals, you know, critical thinking can help us acquire knowledge, improve our skills, strengthen our understanding, um, and, and, you know, therefore I like to promote it, not stifle it. Having an attitude that prefers to be given correct answers rather than figuring them out for yourself tends to stifle it, I think. An attitude that insists on not reflecting or thinking about decisions, instead just relying on gut feelings, I think that stifles critical thinking. Having an attitude that refuses to acknowledge or review mistakes that have been made stifles critical thinking. Or Finally, something that, that is really one of the cornerstones and one of the reasons that I started this um, podcast in the first place. And that is, I think, one of the biggest things that stifles critical thinking is having an attitude that doesn't like to be criticised or challenged in any way. Um, um, you know, people that just want to dig their heels in and become entrenched in dogma. Um, um, you know, I think that that's the major, major uh, obstacle to, to quality critical thinking. Um, I think psychologists and philosophers learn critical thinking as an, an inherent part of their learning, part of their education, in order to be effective um, in, in perhaps you know most paths in life. Surely critical thinking needs to be a part of, of who and how you are, not just blind following, assumption making, believing in anything and everything based upon anecdotal evidence or pseudoscience, for example. 
Um, in that discussion with James Tripp that, that was referred to by our questioner there, I referred to the way in which people trust gut feelings and attribute this kind of godlike status to the unconscious mind or their gut feelings. Um, and a couple of people referred to that in, in stuff they've written to me. Um, um, if The example that I've given um, and that I give over and over is the example of a smoker who's just quit using willpower alone. And he goes to buy a packet of chewing gum with his morning paper a couple of days later and the cigarette packets on the back shelf beckon and attempt to lure our smoker back in. Come on, smoke me, I'm all delicious and smoky. You know you want to, come and get me. You'll feel so great if you just give in and smoke me. Now, our smoker has willpower and fights back to the calls of the cigarettes. No, not on your Nelly. Be gone, cigarettes. I'm no slave to you. Absolutely not. You're a big no-no. Well, well, maybe just this one time. I'll buy a pack and have uh, one final smoke, and then, but then that's it. Definitely no more. And the victor becomes the cigarette packet. Now, many people in personal development circles believe that willpower is no way near as impressive as our intuition, instincts and gut feelings. We're often told to just trust our gut and it will lead us in the right direction. It knows best. In that case, what about our smoker? This was a gut feeling he had to fight off. The gut feeling was making him want to smoke. And it's common knowledge that smoking is not in our best or healthiest interests, is it? I think sometimes we need to strike a balance and know when to fight or override intuition and gut feelings. Apply some intelligence too. Our intuition can be a bit wild from time to time. Now, um, upon one of my bookshops, uh, bookshelves rather, here in this office where I'm recording right now, I have a whopper of a dictionary on it. And that dictionary defines intuition as this. Noun. One. Knowledge or belief obtained neither by reason nor perception. Two, instinctive knowledge or belief. Three, a hunch or unjustified belief. Now, if that's the case, why do so many people hold so much faith in the absolute accuracy and correctness of intuition? Is our intuition really a vast source of perfection? Do we have an ultra genius residing within us all that never gets things wrong? I'm not attempting to dismiss out of hand the intuition that we have, but suggest that we don't treat it like some deity that needs prayer or the sacrifice of our souls. We all have some modest wisdom gleaned through a lifetime of experience, evolution, culture, development, awareness, education and so on. Yet, if I were to give my own intuition a school report, it would have a similar theme to my real life school reports. Could do better. Rather than having to fight or battle with our intuition as our smoker did, and often losing, we can retrain our intuitive selves with evidence. As a hypnotherapist of many years, I think that is partly what therapy is about. Rather than telling people to sort themselves out, therapy has evolved to retrain minds, retrain intuition, and a natural way of doing things instead of problematic behaviours and thought patterns that require intervention, therapeutic intervention. You know, maybe willpower does come off worse when compared to the power of intuition. Maybe it does not. Surely we all benefit from educating our intuition to be more accurate, more effective. Um, um, and so, you know, applying some intelligent reasoning from time to time as well. 
Now then, I think I've harped on enough. In future episodes, we'll be back to formal uh, uh, or, or, or informal discussions with our guests. But I wanted to answer a couple of these questions. I'll be right back. So finally, for this week then, our hypnosis fact of the week. In, in one of his later works, Observations on Trance or Human Hibernation, written in 1850, James Braid provides what is seen by most as the earliest account of self-hypnosis use. He offers an account of how he used self-hypnosis to deal with the pain of a rheumatism attack. He followed all the protocols and instructions that he gave his own hypnosis patients and experienced much success. He went on to be free of his rheumatism for six years. Within Braid's writings, he states that he started using what he referred to as self-hypnotism a couple of years after discovering hypnotism. He initially taught it to his clients, then began using it himself. And I'll quote, My first experiments on this point, i.e. self-hypnosis, were instituted in the presence of some friends on the 1st of May 1843 and following days. I believe they were the first experiments of the kind which had ever been tried, and they have succeeded in every case in which I have so operated. I love that. Our first real solid quality reference of self-hypnosis by the man that created the field itself. Um, if you have a hypnosis factoid that you'd like to share, send it in to me and it may well feature here. And there may well even be some, some prizes for some good ones. Now, in our next edition, my friend and award-winning magician and uh, hypnotist, James Brown will be featuring, and uh, I'm guessing he's going to ruffle some feathers with some of the points that he wants to make and some of the things that he's going to be saying. Um, um, I've got many more exciting guests in future weeks, um, as well as some of the more well-known guys to frontline hypnotherapists. I also have some academics coming on, um, I mean, some proponents of, of, of some particular stances coming on that I've been in contact with recently. Um, um, so there's plenty to look forward to. If, you, if you've got someone that you like to see feature here, then do also consider uh, getting in touch with me and letting me know, and uh, I'll get in touch with them. Um, just to repeat, um, we'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, above all, remaining friends. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions, questions. Please do message me or add them on the website and I'll make sure they're addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Um, please do consider sharing this podcast, Facebook, Twitter, anywhere else. It'll really help us reach the hypnosis field. Uh, my thanks again to Martin S. Taylor. Thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Thank you.